You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Everyone is charmed by a little tomboy, a scrappy little girl in overalls with a ponytail and scraped knees who loves soccer and baseball and comic books and dirt. But what are we charmed by? It's not just that she's cute. It's that she so innocently thinks she's going to stay this way forever. But we all know she won't. And why is that? Because as much as we like a tomboy, nobody likes a tom man. You might be wondering, what is a tom man? I've never heard this term before. You are correct. That is because I invented it. It is the only thing I have ever invented. A tom man is what happens when a tomboy just never grows out of it. Jesse Klein is the Emmy and Peabody award-winning head writer and an executive producer of Comedy Central's critically acclaimed series Inside Amy Schumer. She's also written for Amazon's Transparent as well as Saturday Night Live. She has been featured on the popular storytelling series The Moth and has been a regular panelist on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. She's been published in Esquire and Cosmopolitan and has had her own half-hour Comedy Central stand-up special. Her new book is You'll Grow Out of It. Thank you for joining me, Jesse. Thank you for having me. Jesse, in the very first piece, you write, I think this is because the very idea of possessing an inner voice felt by definition like a male characteristic. And this gets to something that's very interesting to me, is your early on obsession with the inner narrator in you. Mm -hmm. Because I think that means, in a sense, that's how you are a born storyteller, because humans are narrative species. And those of us who think about our narrator are already telling stories about ourselves to ourselves. Yes, we are. <laughs> I know. Oh, the the web we weave. I'm, I guess we are all, like you said, as a species, we are tell, telling our, narrating our day to ourselves throughout the day. I don't know how many people think about what that voice actually sounds like. If it's, you know, Morgan Freeman is always a good one to have narrating <laughs> your day for you. Um, trying to think George Clooney is a great voice. Yeah, I I know it. It's I tried to put my finger on it because, again, now there's it, I, I wanted to be clear, not because no judgments anywhere. It wasn't about, oh, am I a lesbian or am I trans? I think I kind of was aware of being straight. I think I just felt like, oh, storytelling voices as I was taking them in as a little girl who was born in 1975. I just sort of related. I think I was just surrounded by male storytelling voices, as most of us were uh, in terms of popular culture. I think the Dukes of Hazard, <laughs> uh, a, sh- a show that loomed very large for me. Who was the narrator of that? Waylon Jennings, I think maybe, or who, I don't. I forget who who did those those cliffhanger VOs. But yeah, and I don't think I dice. I I obviously wasn't dissecting what that meant until much, much, much later. But it did strike me that I was like, oh, I I guess I'm a girl, but I. What does a girl mean? I, I, it seemed to mean things that I didn't necessarily relate to at the time. Well, I think as a sex, women should have reason to be somewhat upset with you by virtue of this book, which gives us, I think, a very unprecedented 
perception of a woman's mind. Okay. In the same way that I think that when I read Nick Hornby's High Fidelity, I thought this is a great book and no woman should ever be allowed to read this book. Oh, because really? Because it tells you. <laughs> well, I never read the book. I only saw the movie. Okay. Or is there any relationship? Because I love the movie. The, the movie has is quite close to the book, but the narrator of the book you, it's you're inside the main character's the mind, male mind. Yeah, and it's really frighteningly, uh, depressingly true. Oh, <laughs> really? what not... part? Just in terms of because uh, I yeah, I'm trying to think. Was it just him going through like the the foibles and flaws of ex girlfriends in a particularly raw way or something like that? <laughs> yes. Well, I hate to break it to you, <laughs> but you've read the book. Yeah, I I've gone through the foibles and flaws of my ex boyfriends uh, and. Much rawer ways than I even wrote in the book. We all do. It's all happening on both sides. I hope women aren't um, aren't upset with me. I think, yeah, I think I'm trying to kind of write about the struggle of, you know, being a woman and and being allowed to just sort of be authentically who you are when there are all these forces at work, at least in our. I'll just talk about our American society where we currently are and ignore the horrors of many other parts of the world for women <laughs> just because here we are. But, um, yeah, that you're constantly kind of being told that uh, femininity and being a woman requires an enormous amount of heavy lifting. <laughs> that comes, I think, maybe more naturally to some people. and I, and I I But I think for a lot of people, you're often in this position of thinking – this feels horrendous. I don't want to do this. And yet, if I don't, I'm considered some sort of monster person. Um, if I go out on the street and I, um, you know, am over a size two and I haven't dieted myself into nothingness and I have a visible panty line and I haven't waxed every hair off my body, I'm a raccoon beast. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of talking about how uh, uncomfortable that feels and, and trying to find other options. <laughs> uh, that gets to the heart of one of the themes that emerges in this book, the, the idea of wolves versus poodles. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So tell us what you mean by that sure. very descriptive phrase. This, is, well, this requires, I think it's best to kind of tell the origin story, story of wolf versus poodle. Um, I wrote on SNL for a season and you are often there at very crazy hours and it was very late at night or early in the morning and me and this other writer named Emily Spivey kind of bumped into each other in the hall at a moment where we were both kind of husks. Angelina Jolie was on, a, a there's a million TVs on all the time and she was being interviewed by Charlie Rose and we were just staring at, at her and all of her glory <laughs> and I, I believe Emily said, are, oh, she was like, are we even the same species as Angelina Julius? <laughs> and I said, you know, I think it's like with poodles and wolves where they're technically both in the dog family and yet a toy poodle next to a wolf, like there's, you're just like, no, they're not related at all. And yet if you check out their DNA, they are, <laughs> they're quite close. Um, and the poodle wolf chapter is kind of about yeah, I see some women are poodles and some women are wolves. And it's it's not about attractiveness um, because wolves and poodles can both be beautiful. But the, the metaphor I was getting at was the relationship 
that some women, as I was just saying earlier, seem to have to their femininity, where for some women, conforming to the standards of sexiness and prettiness, uh, as, as I think we can all shorthand and understand them, seems effortless. And some women just just seem to get up and go and they're, it always is all falling into place without very much work. And, then, and those are poodles. And then for wolves, it feels like three full-time jobs. <laughs> um, and they're both, they can both be gorgeous, but it just, I think some women struggle with it. And I think some women struggle with it less. I struggle with it a ton. Do you think that this is because of your perception uh, of yourself or because the actuality, in other words, do you think, do you make this a problem? Because from where I'm sitting, the difference between you and Angelina Jolie is, it's philosophical. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Um, I it feels very not philosophical to me. Um, I uh, I oh my god, my head is exploding right now. Um, what was the question? <laughs> well, I think that this is a a problem that, that you might. Oh, is it just personal to me? Am I? Yeah, am, is it, um, I think this is your again. Your storytelling voice is 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 working overtime. Um. I think I think a lot of people, uh, men and women, I think in this arena, especially women, I, I don't know that I am creating it. I mean, I genuinely, I'm on a little mini book tour right now, uh, and I had to be on TV just mere seconds compared to what other people do. I've had to buy clothes to go, you know, appear in front of people, trying to get my... I mean, and I know this sounds all very petty, but since we're talking about it, trying to buy a dress, get my hair and makeup together to appear in front of people, it it feels undoable to me. Um, (laughs) I am in my normal life in jeans and slip-on shoes and a t-shirt, and that is it. I think, I don't know that men relate to the fact that for women, there's like this jeweler's loop of scrutiny over every millimeter of your appearance at most times. And and I it can that the experience of that can go between just occasionally being sort of funny and annoying. Um, and sometimes in cases more serious than what I'm describing can be quite crushing. and i was I was just talking on another program about, the criticism that women face on Twitter, on social media, where people get trolled about the way they look um, to a degree that is truly horrible. So there's there's a spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think it's something that women experience that men don't in the same way. I, I think that's one of the the values of this book. As we read this, as, as a man reading this, I'm thinking, well, now I have to go out there and rebuild 
all the models of <laughs> women's minds that I have. <laughs> you're making models of women's minds? Oh, my gosh. Have you seen Ex Machina? Is that what you're doing? <laughs> no. Do you just, know? Did you see that movie? I, I haven't seen that movie. Oh, it's I've... so good. Oscar Isaac uh, is a crazy billionaire, lives in a mountain, and... I, I don't want to do any spoilers, but it does involve him, like, building robot women. Uh, well, that's been a lifelong achieve, uh, goal for uh, men. Since... I mean, who who doesn't <laughs> want to have a closet full of robot women? Oh, hopefully nobody. <laughs> uh, but this gets me, too, to something that that's really interests me is what's called uh, TOM. This is, uh, I think, that whole intro you read about being a Tom girl and then a Tom man gets me. Tom boy. Tomboy. Yes. And tomboy and then a Tom man. Yes. Uh, gets me to something that uh, the idea of theory of mind. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a psychological thing that we, when we meet somebody, we kind of build, as I was saying, a model of them in our, in our mind. Okay. How, what they're thinking and feeling. And so we can kind of talk to them in a way and not offend them and not come off like a complete idiot. Sure. And then we might try to build a model of how they're modeling us. Right. And then we might take that. You can take that to several levels of Oh, of so many models. levels. Yes. And and that depends on how perceptive you are and, and how completely out of touch you are with reality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As well. Yes. That said, I think that this book um, really thrives on uh, that concept theory of mind in that you will often in these in your writing Build characters, build theories of mind about people that uh, prove to be out of true with how the people actually are so that you'll um, maybe uh, perceive somebody as being worried about something or concerned about something or Mm -hmm. thinking something about you when in point of fact they are thinking about toast. Right. (laughs) I mean, I'm definitely thinking about toast right now. (laughs) I would love toast. Um, Yeah. Wait, I want to know more about theory of mind. Is this like a thing that everyone is talking about and I'm the only one who doesn't know about theory of mind? No, I think this is something I'm talking about because (laughs) I find it really interesting. Wait, is it a new, is it some new critical theory or something? Or did you invent it? It's been around. I've just talked to a lot of people about it of late. Oh, it sounds fascinating. Well, yeah, to me, I think because um, as a writer, you're, that is one of the core skills you possess is the idea, to, the ability to build a mind on paper that somebody can relate to. Right, right. Oh, that's very interesting. I'm genuinely going to Google this. <laughs> I've never heard of this, but I also, uh, I've been a little busy, but I'm fascinated by it. But it's what you do. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, it sounds like from what you're describing, it's something that kind of, um, if do. you're not on the spectrum, um, although maybe also if you're on the spectrum, but it sounds like you, yeah, the idea that you're constantly kind of navigating, interacting with another person and yeah, you're building your sense of how it's going, right. <laughs> sort of the blind date of life. Right. Is this going well? Oh, I like that idea. Do the I want blind date the of blind life. date of life just constantly this is a yes or this is a hard pass to this experience. Yeah, and I, I think, sure, the process of of navigating your reality is you're, you hope to be a self-aware person. I hope to be a self-aware person, but I'm sure I'm having huge misses um, about, and yeah, I do write in the book about relationships I've had where I for sure thought one thing was happening and for sure thought I was being perceived 
in one way, and in fact, had it as wrong as one can have anything. <laughs> yeah, and that's always a horrible feeling, I guess, uh, unless it's a nice surprise where, oh, I thought you hated me. Oh, you love me. <laughs> uh, but when you're dating in your 20s, I think it usually goes the other way around. <laughs> Speaking maybe only from my own experience. Well, I, I think that uh, when I was reading this book, one of the things I saw is that, for me at least, uh, some of the humor uh, emerges from that tension between what we think and what people think about us and what is what we really think. Yeah. And then all of a sudden there's that snap and you realize, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Am I on drugs right now? <laughs> right. Has this all... What did I... I didn't think I smoked anything, but apparently I did. Yeah. I think to, uh, there's... There is kind of a... Uh, yeah, there is always that give and take of of trying to feel like you have a stake in reality and then occasionally realizing maybe you missed the boat. <laughs> I love the story about the cad mm-hmm. and and meeting this this fellow. So when you first met th- this guy, I I mean he seems like, you know, a, a pretty nice guy. So there's the experience of actually Having meeting this guy, and then when you went back to revisit it, how did it feel? Uh, revisiting while I was writing it, yeah. Oh, felt real rough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that was. Uh, yeah, I think to the degree that that revisiting any past romantic real disaster is. Uh, yeah, I think to write it, you kind of have to relive it a little bit in the moment. You're you're kind of a, trying to remember all the detail, all the excruciating details. The embarrassment of it and the hurt of it. And, you know, this was something that, well, I wish it could say it happened longer ago than it did. But I, you know, I think I was 32 or 33 or something like that at the time. And I'm now 40. So it's not ancient history, but it's in the past. <laughs> now I keep coming back to what was the question? Well, I, I'm just wondering about how it felt to relive that. And Oh, yeah. And, and I said bad. And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and my long answer was long, and my short answer is bad. Yeah, <laughs> I, you also write too about something I find pretty interesting. I, I am not a person who takes baths. Yeah, me neither. No, not never. Yeah, never. why would you? <laughs> I I do I do take a shower, but I think you write. Yeah, me too. I take showers. I, I I think you write well about this experience and and about. The, the the Calgon experience, too, which brought back to me just like shades of yesteryear and all that advertising <laughs> yeah. that I used to be subjected to as a kid. Yeah, of course. Calgon, take me away. Yeah. I don't like to take a bath. I never have. I've always found it like a bit gross. And yeah, I have a chapter called The Bath where I kind of explore the origins of my own distaste for this. And it kind of comes off of, you know, as I, my first kind of notion, I guess, intro into like this idea of the bath as like this female space. And um, I think it's kind of reached a bit of like an apotheosis with Oprah, who talks about bathing being her favorite hobby. <laughs> and this is a woman who, uh, and I adore Oprah. Seems like she could, she could have any hobby she wants. Yeah, she loves to take baths, and there's a whole cottage industry around 
um, selling bath accoutrements to women to like, this is your relaxy space. Oh, women love to take a relaxing bath and you're going to put a, a crystal in there and a candle and like women love it. Um, and this is like your your special space. <laughs> <laughs> and I've just always hated it. I'd I like I talk about it always having felt to me like you're um, like making a the world's saddest soup out of yourself. You're stewing in yourself in a way that is really repugnant to me. <laughs> and I talk about remembering those Calgon ads uh, that were on when I was a kid. Again, I'm old, but yeah. I didn't understand the Calgon, that line, which is a very famous line in advertising now. Calgon, take me away. And it was a woman just being bombarded with nonsense. Her husband and her boss, and you see her life is hectic. And then Calgon, take me away. And she's in the bath. And it seemed kind of abstract to me. I didn't understand what the commercial was selling. I was maybe five or six. And it was because I hadn't, I hadn't yet been exposed to the idea that that uh, the bath is the answer to all of the problems of the average female life. And I kind of come to the conclusion, and again, I'm being a little cheeky, and I've gotten some sort of cheeky hate mail from people who are like, I love the bath, <laughs> and that's great. But um, there's a little aspect to me of the selling of the bath to women that feels like we, uh, we've ceded all of the other space metaphorically and literally to other people and that we can't really make it on dry land and that we have <laughs> retreated the way gazelles run into the water when they're fleeing a lion, <laughs> kind of a last stand. And yeah, and I talk about Virginia Woolf and how important it is to have a room of, of your own because if the bath is the only place left to have a moment of thought and silence. It just feels like it would be nice to have a little more space than that. Maybe a desk, <laughs> a chair. Every marriage benefits by the husband and wife having their own bathroom. I mean, I, I, I hope that this book is successful enough that I can one day experience this, this version of marital bliss because... Right now, it's still elbowing each other over to the paste every day. In this book, you explain for those of us, Ben, who don't understand it, the uh, interesting and complicated relationships between women and two very important uh, items of their clothing. Let's start first with <clears throat> a lingerie. Ugh, yeah. <laughs> sure. Did you, was that on purpose? <laughs> Is it hard to say? No. I find it a little creepy. It's, it's like panties it, it, is creepy, lingerie. I don't feel comfortable saying it. I don't yeah, know why. Exactly. Yeah, the word panty. Even, you know, there's a, I think to me, one of the biggest disasters in hair care history. Well, is, <laughs> the great disasters in hair care history. Is that it, on <laughs> is that on cable? Because if it's not, it definitely needs to be. Is, is the person who got permission to name a shampoo Pantene. Oh, terrible. Why, why would you ever put that on your head? I was just about to pile on, and then I realized, I think I use Pantene. <laughs> I'm not totally sure. I don't know. I've been staring at the bottle so long, I can't even see it anymore. Um, but take us to your first visit to uh, America's uh, McDonald's of lingerie stores. Oh, to Victoria's <laughs> Secret. Yeah. Ooh. Uh, yeah, I, I 
I've always felt like um, walking into a Victoria's Secret store is kind of like walking into someone else's vagina, um, which I suppose could be a pleasurable experience. <laughs> but I find this one to be unpleasant. Yeah, it's Victoria's Secret is so ubiquitous, and it's it it really has. I think it's I don't have their marketing statistics, but it it feels like sort of the standard bearer of where American ladies buy underwear. Um, there are competitors, but their marketing and their branding is uh, incredible. And that said, the specifics of their brand, I mean, just the name alone, Victoria's Secret, is so disgusting. <laughs> the idea that that there needs to be the, this secret about your underwear men uh, yeah men are not shopping at robert's secret um it's not it's not a secret uh that men have on this other layer um that is perhaps a little shameful and then uh sexy because of the secretiveness it's so ridiculous but and then visually um yeah, it's just the idea that you, it's, they make it seem like when women are in their underwear, it's supposed to be matching, and it's supposed to be small, and it's supposed to be a color of some kind, um, and yeah, and you're also supposed to have a perfectly flat stomach and no hips and huge boobs. That's the image of women in their underwear, and I don't know any women <laughs> who walk around constantly in, like, underwear that matches... I mean, for Christ's sake, it just yeah, I find it oppressive. The the writing for the of this piece is really nice. I mean, the the prose and and you do a good job of uh, in each of these pieces of wrapping them into a really nice story. Thanks. And, and so I'd like you to just talk about uh, encapsulating parts of your life into these little stories, short stories. Um. Well, thank you for the nice words. Um. Yeah, I I think... How do you as, know when to stop? I mean... <laughs> well, sometimes people just tell me. <laughs> okay. I mean, with the book, literally, I was at a point where I was just churning out. I was trying to stay vaguely on the schedule, which ended up in the garbage. But literally, with the proposal for the book, the book agent I was working with, who was amazing, had told me, just send me one story a week. And when there's enough for a proposal, I'll tell you when to stop. <laughs> And so I, I have a time. I've been, yeah, with this book, oftentimes I was like, can I stop? Within the stories themselves, yeah, sometimes it's hard to know when to stop. But the genesis, you know, I've I've now, I, I, I've done stand-up for a drearily long amount of time. I love doing stand-up. You don't have to do stand-up, I guess. Maybe it's just a writer, a writer thing. But in my head, doing stand-up, you know, when you're looking for material... I don't know, and maybe you have this experience. I kind of trained myself to, A, carry a notebook with me all the time, or now I take notes on my iPhone, but just to kind of be ultra aware of listening again to that inner narrator as I move throughout the day, and to kind of just be aware of moments where I feel a moment of discomfort, that there's some little thing that's happening where there's like a little dissonance for me, even if I can't put my finger on it. 
of like something is off and not necessarily in a negative way, like a funny way, sometimes a negative way, but just that there's some little crack in my, in the blind date of life where uh, I'm like, oh, there's, what am I feeling that feels sort of like a new experience or this is an experience I've been having over and over again and it's requiring some mental effort from me and then to write those down. Shopping for lingerie is one of those experiences. Taking a bath occasionally because I have to because I have a bad back and hating it. Kind of being like, why do I why do I hate this? Or why do I like something? Like the chapter about anthropology, a store that I shop at way too much and why do I love this and hate this? And kind of being aware of like a, a pleasure center being touched or not touched. And when I sat down to write the book, kind of looking through notes that I'd taken over the years and being like, is there something big in this little thing? And uh, yeah, I think that's like, you know, the old chestnut about the more specific writing is the more universal it is. So keeping track of my own specifics. One of the specifics I really enjoyed was your uh, story about your relationship with another very important piece of clothing for all women, the wedding dress. Oh, yeah. Yes. (laughs) So embarrassing. (laughs) Well, I I think that, that, uh, again, the import of that experience to women is somewhat lost to men because as you describe um, your uh, husband— yeah, getting his it took him twenty minutes, and that's yeah, literally about, about what it took me too. Yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, it's infuriating. I've never been more angry with him <laughs> than I was that day, where I was like, "Well, now you'll see what I've been going through." When we went to one store, and he put on a suit and it looked kind of great, and he was like, "All right, now what?" And I was just like, "Please don't ever speak to me again. You're a monster." Yeah, I wrote a chapter about shopping for a wedding dress. I ended up trying on. I counted. I mean, I literally, because you, you get like a little card from all these places and I saved them. And I, 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 I'm not exaggerating when I say I tried on, I think, just over 100 wedding dresses, which I find so embarrassing to admit. I went into a rabbit hole. I think because my initial reaction to the idea of a wedding dress was like, ew, gross. I'm a feminist. This whole, everything about this is just steeped in stupid nonsense and some of it being sartorially like the Cinderella kind of wedding dress I was just like that is a big no but then symbolically I was like a eh, white dress like I was almost 40 I'm like I'm not no illusion here about what this white dress originally meant I'm not a virgin I, I'm gonna wear a tube top I'll I'm jean shorts to my wedding I don't care <laughs> And then, you know, through a series of friends wanting to go shopping, oh, maybe I'll just buy, like, a pretty dress. And I think the crux of it for me was I I got seduced by this idea that for however long you really are in your wedding dress during your wedding, it's a few hours, right? Four or five hours, maybe you change into something else at a certain point. It felt like this test of being a woman. Like, can I just look nice in a dress for four hours out of my entire life? And I've never, I write about in the book, I, even though I've done stand up, that's me talking and people paying attention to me because of what I'm saying. 
I've never been someone who was comfortable with being looked at and, you know, just looked at for my appearance. Um, I kind of tried to put my appearance away. And when you're the bride, for better or worse, you're kind of the star of this show, which, again, I've, I have so many problems with that whole thing. <laughs> I got I, I felt like suddenly I just felt like I it wasn't a choice I was making. I started to feel like, oh, I actually everything I try on looks bad on me. I don't. Is this something I can't do? And then I just I, I lost my mind. <laughs> I, I don't know how to say it any better than that. I really I lost my mind. In this book, one of the things I found was really interesting was that you tell us the story of, you know, the courtships of your life kind of out of order. So you get this kind of asynchronous vision of you. Ooh, asynchronous. Yeah, it's like it's kind of like the time traveler's wife version of your life. Okay. You check in, and we check in with you at different parts of your life. Yes. Early, late. Yes. Back and forth, and but it is really interesting to to see, you know, your earlier relationships with Pete. It's almost like we get to. Uh, uh, after a while, I started feeling like this is this is kind of like the soap opera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is like a she, she, Spanish soap opera, but there's very few Spanish people in it, mostly Jews. Um, and the dramas are petty and small, and this shouldn't be on television, and it's not. <laughs> it's a book. But it won't know Wow, that. a soap opera. I'm so impressed that that's how it was taken. Well, no, I think it was because it's nice. We, Just we a to, narrative. Yeah, we got uh, to sit the arc and you know, put it together after a while, put together. Oh, oh, she's with Pete again. I, <laughs> oh, that I, one. Yeah, I kind of re- would like remember who they were and yeah, put it, yeah. be able to put them in place and stuff. And I thought that was an interesting effect because it just reminded me of when I was a little kid. My grandmother would watch the soap operas yeah, on TV. Yeah, stories. Yeah, and, that's what they and, call them, right? And she'd, watch my stories. Yeah, and she'd talk about the people and like they were real. Yeah, <laughs> I watched. I had a brief. I had a brief moment with um, with Days of Our Lives, right? Luke and Laura. I mm-hmm. think that was one. <laughs> I don't know. Sometime around junior high school, I was like, I'm going all in on this. I'm watching Days of Our Lives, and it's really fun when you watch them. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad that it had that kind of, that kind of dramatic appeal. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm glad to hear that. You're. When I was writing, I think I'm, you know most writers sit and are like, oh God, I hope this isn't too boring for people. As I'm navel, you know, you don't want to be navel gazing, but in some ways, writing is inherently navel gazing because you're just looking at your navel. <laughs> This assumes you. This you must type in your tube top. Then, uh, oh yeah, oh, my my closet full of tube tops. I don't think I've ever owned a tube top. Really? Yeah, not one. Um, I it was interesting to read about um your when you were uh trying to have a a, a child. I thought that yeah. was a really um interesting piece of writing because. It, you managed to make it both funny, but also to convey, you know, the really intense emotions that are around that event, and it's that's a, a tough road to hoe. Yeah, yeah, it was. I'm I'm glad that that I was kind of able to to get that written and in, into the book. Yeah, I'm I'm. It's interesting to me how easily I am now able to talk about that topic. Yeah, I have no. 
if anything, I'm like super eager to talk about it with women who might be going through it and want to talk about it. And at the time, I was deeply embarrassed by it and very depressed by it. Um, yeah, I have. I, I'm very lucky, and I now have a a, a little boy. Um, and I uh, I got pregnant when I I guess at the time I was 38 when I got pregnant. I was 39 when I gave birth. So, um, yeah, I I had to go through. I mean, all the the insy details of it um, are are in the book, and um, yeah. So I, I don't need to like go through all of them here. But yeah, I had trouble. I had some trouble getting pregnant. There was some issues where even before I started trying, I was I learned I would have trouble, and it was very surprising to me. And even though I kind of pride myself on being someone who's like being who's honest. I'm I'm very comfortable with the idea that I am not perfect. <laughs> and um and so it's just generally like a faster route to comfort to just be open. I found I felt the stigma of not of possibly being infertile deeply depressing. The processes of dealing with it are physically very uncomfortable. And then on top of that, it's a it's a mess, mentally, for me anyway. And uh, it was the first time in my life I really found myself going through something I had a very hard time talking about, yeah, at the time. And now I'm I'm totally comfortable with it. And my husband, who was great and very supportive, didn't understand, I think how I felt, which I think maybe there's no way to totally get it until you're in it. But I remember him saying he would talk to women at work who'd gone through it and who had kids. And he was like, I don't know why you feel this way. So-and-so at work told me like she went through round after round of IVF and she was super fine talking about it. And now I realize, and I would always be like, well, that's them. I don't know how they're talking that way about it. And then I realized... Oh, he was t- like when you get to the other side of it, and you've had a baby, you're like, oh, that, and <laughs> but maybe you know there. Are, I think there are also women going through it who are okay talking about it. I don't want to cast a whole group everybody together, but for me, I, I struggled with it. I really felt bad about it. I think it might have something to do with uh, a story in progress. Maybe. A narrative that's not finished yet. Maybe that was part of it. I think there's also some little scrap of having always been like, a, I was like a very good student, mm. like an A student, and I'm good at like completing a task that like maybe that touched some sort of nerve for me of like, oh, I'm going to fail at something. I mean, I, but I'm an A student. I can do, I can do this. It was strange. I don't, I might not even fully understand it yet. Well, if you can stand up and do uh, tell stories on the moth and do stand up comedy, that, <laughs> I, I, I'd say that's about harder than anything next to negotiating nuclear treaties. <laughs> you definitely don't want me negotiating the nuclear treaty. Maybe we do. I don't. I assure you, you don't. <laughs> um, this book was written, uh, you know, in in isolation. This is just you sitting down. Could you talk about the difference? For you, between that and working on a group collaboration effort, for example, the Amy Schumer show. Sure, um, writing um, writing a collaboration for TV 
uh, or uh, specifically like Schumer, but in general, yeah, is generally kind of like a raucous. You're in a room with people. You're telling. You're generally kind of just talking about your life a bunch, or it, it ends up there. Everyone's telling stories. You're snacking. People are. La- you know, I'm a comedy writer, so uh, comedy rooms at least people are laughing. It's pretty fun. There are moments that are you're stuck. It's not fun. It's generally pretty fun. Uh, writing a book by yourself is real lonely. <laughs> um, it does require sitting alone, um, not talking to people, uh, which for me is torture. Um, I like my moments alone, but uh, writing a book takes you into depths of alone time that that's rough for me. Uh, I so but I enjoyed on the other hand, once I could hook into it, there's the resistance of like sitting for hours and being like, oh, blank page, I'm dying. Once I got going and could really hook into concentration, um, which I feel like is such a, I feel like concentration is kind of evaporating from from humans' abilities now with Pokemon Go and all that kind of thing. But once I could remember that I could concentrate, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the format of writing a book. I enjoyed going off on tangents and being able to kind of stretch. TV is very compressed. You know, you're always in a limited time frame. Mm. Um, and a book, you tell yourself when to stop. <laughs> to, yeah. I mean, some, I, and there are you times have a great sensibility of that. I really like the way the stories will kind of sometimes just kind of like wrap up on themselves. And you had some nice uh, stories that had almost symmetrical construction going in and out, which I thought was really... Uh... Symmetrical construction. I don't think I remember any of those, <laughs> but um, but I, I leave it to other people to receive them. Well, thank you. Um, Do you think you'll be doing... Have you like think you'd be like doing fiction or another book of essays? Um, I, I would like to write another book of essays... Yeah, I don't know. I I'm so in awe of novelists, like people who are writing fiction works. And mm-hmm. like, I read. Um, I think the last like big novel I sat down to read was The Goldfinch, and you know, I just got so completely lost in it in a great way, and just like, oh my god, how does anyone do this? Mm-hmm. That seems I I put that in another category altogether. But um, I would write another book of essays. Yeah. I don't think I can plot out what Donna Tart is doing, but very few people can. I think only she can do what she does. That's the idea, but that's you. I wouldn't surprise me if you had one in you. We'll we'll find out. We'll find and yet, I, I strongly doubt it. <laughs> we'll find out, but I strongly doubt it. I've been speaking with Jesse Klein. Her new book is "You'll Grow Out of It." I don't think you will, though. I definitely haven't. I think at best I'll get used to it. Thank you for joining me, Jesse. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.